Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. In today's episode, Dr. Baruch S. Bloomberg, Fox Chase Cancer Center, winner of the 1976 Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine, and Professor H. Sharat Chandra, Indian Institute of Science, Bangalore, India, discuss polymorphism and human disease. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and don't forget to subscribe to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Okay. So, Baruch, uh, let me go back to the beginning. Uh, you are a pioneer in the study of uh, human polymorphism and uh, susceptibility to disease. How did you become involved in this, uh, in this area, way, way ahead of uh, most of us? Well, I'd like to say that I think it's fortunate that you came here on a visit just when this uh, filming was taking place, and uh, it's good to see you and, and talk about these issues. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, my uh, perception is that I became interested in uh, differences in disease susceptibility uh, when, I, when I worked in uh, South America, in uh, Suriname which is in northern South America and, and near uh, Guyana and uh, mm. French Guiana and uh, just north of Brazil, a small country, quite undeveloped at the time. And I went there in 19, um, it would have been 1949 or thereabouts, mm. 1950, 1950, uh, when it was uh, even less developed uh, place than it is now. Uh, worked in a hospital in uh, in the bush. There was a hospital connected with a large aluminum mine, mm -hmm. but quite isolated uh, mm -hmm. uh, part of the country. Uh, and uh, we did uh, some clinical work there, and in addition did uh, surveys of uh, several important um, tropical uh, parasitic diseases, and malaria and filariasis and various kinds of intestinal parasites. Well, one of the uh, observations that really uh, struck me uh, with the, um, um, uh, particularly in, in relation to filariasis, mm. uh, filariasis is, uh, popu uh, the popular name is yeah. uh, elephantiasis. It leads to uh, extreme enlargement of some of the extremities uh, because of the blockage of the lymph channels by the uh, causative agent, Wuchereria uh, bancrofti. But one of the uh, striking differences was that there was a, <clears throat> a major difference in prevalence between the population uh, living in this mining town uh, called Mungo, uh, the population that had, uh, who's, uh, had, that had derived from West Africa, uh, compared to uh, another large segment of the population that had derived from Indonesia. Mm -hmm. uh, people have been brought to Suriname uh, going back to the 17th century uh, to work in the sugar plantations initially, and they were resident populations uh, that had been there for several generations. They were uh, both living in the same area? Living, in this case, in, in this uh, town that was constructed for the uh, mine, Mm. Uh, and living under very similar conditions. There was a much higher prevalence of uh, carriers of the filaria uh, organism in the uh, people of, uh, of African descent uh, than in the people who came from what's now Indonesia. And that struck me, mm -hmm. that there should be such a big difference. We mm -hmm. also saw some differences in the other parasites, but that sort of stayed with me. Uh, then, uh, when I went to do my clinical training uh, after completing medical school, I worked at a large city hospital in, in New York, 
at Bellevue Hospital. Uh, had several thousand beds. And, uh, we had a very heterogeneous population. And there was a kind of general uh, knowledge that some population groups uh, responded less well to disease than others. Uh, for example, tuberculosis. There was a big difference how different populations responded to it. Mm. And again, I think that uh, kind of sunk into my psyche, this mm -hmm. fact that, that, uh, that there were such major differences and then one of the questions that physicians often ask, you know, when you're standing at the foot of the bed mm. and you're looking at somebody there who's sick, you say, well, why is he sick and I'm not, for mm. example? Mm. And uh, clearly a lot of that's due to bad luck, mm. you know, to environmental circumstances mm. as a big uh, reason, but also that there were inherited differences between mm. Uh, mm. individuals. Mm. So I, I, I believe I had sort of at the back of my head the notion that would yes. be an interesting thing to study. Mm. And also, at another level, I like the idea of working with populations, working in, in, um, in the field, uh, working in, in developing countries. Mm. And, uh, one's sort of yeah, you subsequently became associated with the National Institutes of Health, NIH, and there you developed this program of uh, yes. what used to be called geographic medicine, I believe. Isn't yes. that correct? Yes. I um, had first, uh, uh, the, the studies actually commenced when I was still in Oxford. Mm. Although my, I was doing my mm. my PhD mm. Uh, mm. thesis, uh, and uh, although my thesis was on quite another topic, it mm -hmm. had to do with mm. these long chain sugars that mm -hmm. uh, make up the synovial fluid mm. and other biological fluids. Mm. It was a problem in physical biochemistry. Mm. Uh, while I was there, I um, uh, learned about polymorphisms mm -hmm. um, uh, through the through uh, the um, interaction with uh, Tony Allison, Allison Anthony yes. Allison, whom you know, uh, and who had been very much uh, influenced by E.B. Ford. Yes, I was going to say that uh, you know, Ford uh, gave us the definition of polymorphism in genetic terms, which is widely, which current even today. Yeah. Yes. And of course, there's been a whole tradition of evolutionary thinking in the, thinking at, in the Department of Zoology or in Oxford altogether, and particularly in the Department of Zoology. Mm. Well, I was not in the Department of Zoology, <laughs> but I was sort of influenced by it. It was across the street from, mm -hmm. from the Department of Biochemistry. And it gradually dawned on me that, uh, <clears throat> that the study of polymorphism uh, would uh, give an opportunity, that, that would be a very precise technique, mm -hmm. because it was based on biochemical, biochemical polymorphisms. Uh, which were quite explicit. And uh, you could very often, there was a direct the notion was there was a close relation between mm -hmm. the gene mm -hmm. uh, and the phenotype, yes. that is the protein. Uh, in many cases, it would have been a, an, absolute, you know, an actual direct connection. Mm -hmm. And uh, therefore, that gave you kind of a grip on mm -hmm. studying the genetics by mm -hmm. studying the mm -hmm. phenotype. Mm -hmm. Of course, now we can study the genetic material directly. Mm -hmm. But at that time, we studied the phenotype, the protein. Mm -hmm. Um, that led you on to the discovery of the Australia antigen and uh, eventually yes. to the hepatitis B virus. Would you give us a, um, uh, recapitulate some of the major uh, events uh, that uh, led to this very important uh, discovery of yours? The, for, for several years after, I, so I started this work when I was still at Oxford 
uh, with the, uh, I, I, in retrospect, I'm amazed that my supervisor, uh, Sandy Oxton, Alexander Oxton, allowed me to do this, because <laughs> you know, I was working on quite another problem. But he, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Sandy has always been a kind of model to me, mm -hmm. the way to manage research, that is to leave people alone. <laughs> uh, but in any case, uh, so I started uh, working uh, on this um, polymorphisms using the technique of electrophoresis in a gel, which had only just been introduced by Dr. Smithies, Oliver mm -hmm. Smithies, who himself are, you know, very uh, an important uh, yes. intellectual contributor to um, to genetics, and, uh, as well as being a very good uh, person on techniques on developing methods. But in any case, so uh, I continued that uh, when I when I got to the National Institutes of Health. And, um, and we decided that what we should do is, one, try to discover new polymorphisms, uh, or to put it another way, uh, new kinds of inherited variation in people, uh, or to use a term that's much more uh, uh, used now, and that is a study of diversity in human yes. populations. So the notion was that we would try to find these new polymorphisms, and then learn about their distribution in different populations. So we were studying populations primarily, not people with disease. But we had the, uh, the underlying model, the underlying hypothesis is that if we kept looking at these things, eventually we'd find disease associations. Yes. Because, you know, evolutionary uh, concepts um, th uh, taught us that killing diseases or diseases that shorten life, uh, particularly before, uh, well, shorten life in general, uh, would have an, an effect on the distribution of polymorphisms. So if we continued to look at polymorphisms, kept our eyes open, so mm -hmm. to speak, uh, in uh, on what the disease, possible disease associations were, that eventually we'd find some disease mm -hmm. associations. But we weren't pushing for the disease association. We we're quite happy to do this kind of stamp collecting. Mm -hmm. That is, just learn about uh, distributions and try to find new, new kinds of polymorphisms. Um, what uh, motivated you to go to Australia in search of this, uh, during this search? Well, <clears throat> we had initially looked for the polymorphisms using the electrophoresis technique. And then uh, Tony Allison came to visit me in, in Maryland at the National Institutes of Health. And uh, we started another technique, another method for identifying uh, polymorphisms. And that was based on the use of serum of transfused patients. Uh, the notion that Tony brought along with him that uh, summer uh, was that um, uh, we, that if people received a large number of transfusions, then it would be likely that they would be transfused with serum protein variants that they themselves had not inherited. Uh, we knew enough about distribution of these protein variants, the, the polymorphisms. We knew that even if they got four or five or 10 transfusions, they'd be very likely to get a protein that they hadn't inherited. Now, there was a kind of assumption that that either the known polymorphisms in serum proteins or ones that we didn't know might be antigenic mm. and would elicit 
a elicit an immune response in the patient who received the blood. So we decided to, so the hypothesis was that we'd find an antibody that reacted with an antigen present in some of the population and not others. That is an yeah, antigenic yeah. polymorphism. And uh, we didn't know what that might be. Well, we discovered a polymorphism of that sort. And that was a polymorphism of the low-density lipoproteins, which we called at that time the AG system. It was a, uh, it didn't have any specific meaning, the AG. Uh, and uh, we did a lot of work on the family distribution, on genetics. It uh, was a, a simple Mendelian uh, trait. We found multiple alleles, multiple loci seemed to be involved. It was fairly complicated genetics. And we began to elaborate that and try to find out any disease associations. Well, we did find an association with diabetes. And then uh, a, another association has been found with uh, cardiovascular disease. And then the field was, was advanced quite uh, rapidly uh, by um, uh, other workers, Kari Berg in, in uh, Norway uh, was uh, one of them, who made antibodies against uh, uh, human lipoproteins in rabbits. That mm -hmm. is, it was a much more controlled system. Now, that actually was a different locus. Mm -hmm. And that uh, subsequently led to the discovery of the apolipoprotein B yes. Yes. polymorphism, which is associated with Alzheimer's disease. Mm. It's one of the uh, most interesting really, yes, you're right. of the polymorphic uh, distribution. Now, that all happened later. Yes. Our initial contribution was mm. uh, uh, for the discovery of the lipoprotein, and that work was carried on by other people. But meanwhile, having discovered one polymorphism, we thought, well, if we found one, um, we'll find another. And, um, and so we, in effect, continued to test the hypothesis that you would, could identify polymorphisms by using uh, antibodies that might develop in transfused people. And, and that uh, led to a consideration of what do you do with hypotheses? Well, a hypothesis at one level is a kind of the scientist's view of what's going on in the world, you know, what's happening in nature. And it's meant to be a kind of an image or picture of, of, uh, of what's actually happening. In addition to that, and not separate from it, it's a kind of tool of discovery. Um, the important thing about a good hypothesis is that it generates interesting experiments. So independent of whether the hypothesis is correct or not, if it leads to interesting experiments, that's a great value. As this yeah, you've written uh, about these matters, and maybe towards the end of our conversation, we can uh, come no. back to that. So we decided to use it in this kind of heuristic sense. Uh, and um, and we, therefore, we look for more transfuse serum and uh, try to find other, uh, other polymorphic systems. Well, on one occasion, we found a, uh, a, a antibody that reacted with an antigen, and it was quite different than the lipoprotein polymorphism. It looked different, the precipitin band, it had a very different distribution, and it had uh, migrated differently in electrophoresis, so it was clearly a different protein. Uh, and, um, and the major thing is that it was not common in the population, in most of the populations we studied. 
the lipoprotein reactions were in a typical population would be 30, 40, 50 percent of the population. The second uh, system we discovered, uh, one out of in the United States, for example, we didn't find any in the thousand tests. But it was very common in certain populations, and in particular in Australian Aborigines. Now, we had included the Australian Aborigines in our test pool uh, because from our work on polymorphisms, we knew that the, uh, the gene uh, distributions is very different in different populations. And by chance, we had included the Australia Aborigines in the pool that this particular antiserum uh, was tested against. So uh, we decided we ought to find out more about what we called Australia antigen. So Barry, here is uh, this uh, discovery of this antigen that you had made, Australia antigen. And uh, here was this uh, long-standing clinical problem of hepatitis, jaundice, uh, which had bothered clinicians for uh, generations. And uh, you, somewhere along the way, made this uh, important and highly original connection between the two. Uh, that led eventually, of course, to your discovery of the hepatitis B virus. Can you recapitulate the circumstances that uh, led you to do this? I've uh, tried to keep, uh, tried to reconstruct just uh, what happened. And uh, I tend to write most things in a notebook of this kind, which I've... Admirable habit. I wish I had it. <laughs> well, you've got something very similar right there, I see. <laughs> Uh, but in case, I, I, I went through that, and of course, I had laboratory notes and so forth. And I've tried to reconstruct the episodes that, that, that made us think that we might be dealing with the hepatitis virus. Well, the, uh, after we found the Australian antigen, the question is, what was it? Uh, and um, we uh, decided we had to make a series of hypotheses and uh, test the hypotheses um, and uh, either support or reject those, and then uh, from, the, from the data that we collected, testing them, make additional hypotheses until we had uh, illuminated the area by this test of hypotheses based on observation. So in, when you decide to make hypotheses, you can do it in several ways. You can use somebody else's hypothesis. You can uh, make it without any data whatsoever. Or, but what I think is best is actually going out and collecting the data and making the hypotheses based on that. Because in funny when you collect the data yourself, you have some sort of intuitive knowledge uh, about it that very often you can't actually express. Uh, I mean, intuition usually means something that you know, but you don't know you know. Uh, so we uh, decided to do what is often disparagingly called a... Uh, fishing expedition. Uh, it's, as you probably know, it's often difficult to fund uh, yes. such things because, in effect, people want you to have the hypothesis before you collect the data. Uh, but in any case, we were able to go, to go ahead with that. And what we did was we uh, did uh, thousands of uh, tests on the blood that we in uh, blood specimens and biological specimens that we had collected and saved as part of this study we'd done in the past on polymorphisms. We had a large collection of these serum. And uh, we looked at the distribution of, uh, of Australia antigen in different human populations, animal populations uh, too for that matter, and also in, in different disease groups. 
and we made several observations. One of them, it was very rare in the United States. We didn't. We found one in a thousand, uh, perhaps. However, it was quite common in in um, in other parts of the world, and, uh, for example, East Asia, uh, India, uh, West Africa, East Africa, in the Pacific. We also found that it was common in patients with leukemia of various kinds. Okay, so based on that observation, rare in the normal population in the United States, common in patients with leukemia. So there's several hypotheses you can make. Uh, one of them is that um, the Australian causes leukemia, A causes B. Uh, the other is leukemia causes the Australian that is, if you get leukemia, Australian is produced. And three, that there's a common factor, which we, because of our orientation towards polymorphism, said there's a common factor that makes us susceptible both to getting leukemia and to getting the Australian So that was the kind of hypothesis that we wanted to test. Well, we actually started testing all of them. But the one that was easiest to test was the third one, because we could make a corollary of that and said that if we looked at populations that had a high risk of developing uh, leukemia, then uh, we would uh, predict uh, a high prevalence of the Australian antigen. That was the hypothesis. And we set about testing that. Uh, looking at populations that had a high risk of developing leukemia. Uh, most of us in our group were medically trained, and we, and we, or several of us were, so we had, you know, some idea about these, uh, about these possibilities. Well, people who'd received radiation for a variety of reasons uh, have a higher incidence of leukemia. But there was another group, uh, patients with trisomy 21, uh, Down syndrome or monolism, as it was uh, used to be called, they have a much higher likelihood of getting childhood leukemia uh, than people than other mentally retarded children. So we tested the Down syndrome patients uh, in, at various places, including the institution out here in New Jersey. And then you joined yeah. us for that one of our field trips there. You and uh, David, David Hungerford uh, looking at the chromosomes. And uh, our prediction was fulfilled. The patients in this large institution who had, um, uh, uh, who had Down syndrome had a much higher prevalence of the Australian antigen than uh, control patients in the same institution uh, who were mentally retarded but had another diagnosis. Well, that was very satisfying. You know, if you have a hypothesis and make a prediction, it doesn't mean the hypothesis is correct, but it means that you found out something you didn't know before. And it also gave us the possibility of, of uh, studying these uh, young people in, in, in detail. So we continued to make observations on them. Now, one of the things we wanted to find out was whether the Australian gene was persistent, whether it was kind of a characteristic of a person. Because when you're studying genetic traits, ordinarily expect them to be present for some period. And um, we found that in general that was true, that if they, were, if they were positive at one point in time, they were likely to be positive at another uh, time, weeks or months or even years later. Uh, and if they were negative when we first tested them, then they were most likely to be negative when subsequently tested. And one day we saw an exception to this. A young chap, 
uh, who would, um, we knew quite well. He'd uh, uh, we'd seen him at the at the institution. Uh, had, he was a Down syndrome patient. Down syndrome patient, and he was negative. And when we first, and he subsequently became positive. Well, we brought him in for observation at our clinical research unit here, and. Uh, Al Sutnick and Tom Lennon and myself were observing him, and we did a series of clinical tests. We discovered that he had slight elevation in his liver chemistries. That is, uh, clinical uh, chemistry tests that are done to see if there's abnormalities in the liver cells, usually breakdown in the liver cell. And he had a slight elevation. Well, based on that, we made the hypothesis that Australian antigen was associated with hepatitis. We tested that more fully in the Down syndrome patients, and we tested it in other patients. And we found that there was such an association. If you had acute hepatitis, chronic hepatitis, there was a greater likelihood of having Australian antigen. So we had tested the hypothesis of association of hepatitis B with it. Now, I want to stop for a minute and go back a little bit earlier, because our minds had actually been kind of prepared from this, for this, by a series of what you might call casual observations. For example, uh, we had done a large ser uh, a series of tests on a large uh, population of normal employees, uh, the employee tests, and we got permission to, to test those sir, anom anonymously, as we didn't know who they were. And uh, we identified one uh, person in about a thousand who was uh, who had Australian antigen. Well, by inquiring back through her to her physician, we discovered she'd had a transfusion. Uh -huh. Okay, so that this all happened before this exp the episode with the uh, young no, person with Down syndrome. So that so you know you know that was registered in our memory someplace. Or another example, we. We had done, uh, I'd done some work on the people who had been exposed to radiation as a consequence of an explosion of a hydrogen uh, bomb, a hydrogen bomb testing on uh, the Central Pacific in Micronesia, on the island of Rongelap, a, a very uh, uh, so, I was, I notorious uh, uh, episode. But these people had been examined yearly to uh, monitor any uh, health problems that arose. And I tested them sequentially and uh, discovered that there was one person there who at one time did not have the antigen, then had the antigen, then had antibody against it. And again, that was uh, suggestive of an infectious agent. And it turned out he had had a transfusion. Uh, and, th and then, uh, for example, we did a study in a um, of a large population in the southern part of the United States it was said to be from a normal population. And one of the patients uh, was positive first. Well, we called up his physician. He said, well, actually, he, that patient wasn't, that person wasn't from the normal population. He was a patient that uh, has hepatitis. Uh, so it had been included in the normal, in the, what we thought was the normal population. Well, so all these things kind of they gel, were the, gel together. Yeah, they were in the literal of our mm. imagination, so to speak, 
you know, in the you know, just sur you know, surrounding our thinking. And the episode that I described in with the Down syndrome patient that appeared to really uh, be compelling. You know, and, and it's it sort of pushed us forward on testing the hepatitis. So the hepatitis model kind of grew out of a whole background of other stuff, and it gradually kind of accreted mm. until we uh, saw it as as an important or the important hypothesis to test. And then, of course, you showed that uh, what is the Australia antigen is really the protein coat of the hepatitis B virus and. Uh, you identified and characterized the yes. virus electron microscopically and by other methods subsequently. And you went on to develop the first vaccine for the, for the disease. Yes. Which is a major, uh, it led to major public health benefits. Uh, would you, in, in a brief manner, uh, recapitulate uh, those uh, important developments as well? I'll, I'll try to be brief. <laughs> I, I haven't been successful so far. But, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll uh, attempt that. Um, the, um, <laughs> the circumstances are actually sort of odd. I hadn't thought very much about a vaccine. Well, we'd thought about it, but not uh, focused on it. Before you go ahead with that, how long was the time span between your uh, this gelling of these ideas that it could be the hepatitis uh, B causative agent and uh, your actual demonstration and then the vaccine idea? Uh, well, time span. Well, the... the the Australia antigen had first been observed probably in 63. Yeah. And that was actually the observation was made by Harvey Alter, a colleague of mine who was working in... Yeah, it's a very famous paper, Alter and Blumberg. Right. Yes, I know that. And uh, so, uh, and, but then we actually kind of put it aside for a while because we were working on the, uh, the lipoprotein polymorphism. And then uh, here, when I was at Fox Chase, we decided to pursue it. And then it was probably in mid, so that happened in, let's say, 63, 64. Then in mid-67, we published a paper in which we uh, stated that hypothesis and, the, and some of the data that supported it. So it was, let's say, from the time we really began to work on it, perhaps two years, three years, that we'd shown the connection with hepatitis. We suspected it prior to that, but let's say two or three years. Then, um, in pro probably a year or two later, uh, Tim Talbot, whom you know, of course, who was the director of Fox Chase Cancer Center, uh, brought some of us, we senior scientists together, to tell us that the administration, the, the federal administration, had said that they expected research institutions, universities, and so forth, who got NIH grants, to start finding ways of supporting themselves. And the inference was that they wanted to, uh, for us to get uh, patents and uh, you know commercialize this stuff. Well, and they, the threat was they were going to cut back the federal funding on the notion that we should be able to kind of look after ourselves a bit more. Well, as a matter of fact, I don't think that actually happened, but it uh, sort of put a you know it sort of put a fear, you might say, that we really ought to do something. And after I. Uh, Tim had told us that I went to see Irv Millman, who, along with Tom London and uh, Al Sutnick and others, were you know, uh, part of your team. Yeah, you know, were a good part of the, were with the, we worked on this for a very long time. And uh, I said, Irv, you know, we have to uh, make a vaccine. Uh, because, number one, it's really needed. And secondly, we have this. Uh, um, 
push, you know, drive this order, you might say, to sort of move ahead. Uh, so, uh, and we already knew a fair amount about the virus. One thing we discovered was that uh, in addition to the whole virus particle, uh, which, con uh, which contained the nucleic acid and so forth, there were smaller particles that contained only the surface antigen of the virus. And um, we actually hadn't seen the whole virus ourselves. We only saw the smaller particles. We inferred the existence of the whole virus, and that was later found by a group of uh, British investigators, uh, Dr. Dane and uh, Dr. Elvira and others who worked on that. Uh, but we inferred that there would be a whole virus particle. That was one observation. And that was very unusual for a virus, to have these enormous number of these surface antigen particles in the blood. It was vast amounts. I mean, like 1% of the serum proteins were made up of this surface antigen of the virus. So um, another observation was that in these population studies, we never or hardly ever saw an individual who both had the virus in his or her blood and had the antibody against it. Now, that observation is consistent with the antibody against the surface antigen being a protective antibody. Just to digress for a moment, one of the major problems in finding a vaccine for HIV or for hepatitis C virus, a current area of intense research, I should say, is that they can't identify or haven't identified the protective antibody or protective cellular immune response. It's not yes. known. What yes, you... yes, right. Well, we only knew about one antibody, and we only knew about one antigen at the time. We knew that they didn't co-occur very often. That was consistent with the protective character to the antibody. So our notion was that's going to be the protective uh, antibody. So we devised the method for making a vaccine in which we took the blood of people who carry the hepatitis B virus, centrifuged it and used other mechanical procedures, essentially, to separate the whole virus from the surface antigen particles. Then you discard the virus, take the surface antigen particles, treat them rather harshly to kill any possible virus that might remain, any other blood-borne virus or infectious agent, and that was the vaccine. And injected. Uh... And you injected. That, uh, that was a unique method for making a vaccine. No vaccine had been made that way before that. Before, None yes. Since then, I don't think. How uh, uh, easy for, was it for you to get uh, acceptance by the uh, regulatory authorities as well as the medical community and the public for this uh, totally new kind of vaccine? Well, it. I think you have to say it was relatively uh, straightforward. Mm. Uh, it took a little time, but if you consider how long it took to develop other vaccines, uh, you know, relative to that, I think it I went rather quickly, uh, with a certain number of our, uh, obstacles, obviously, and it took you know, four or five or six years. Mm. And uh, would you tell us about the current status of uh, vaccination uh, against uh, HBV? and other hepatitis-causing viruses around the world. There were a couple of really major things that happened uh, that accelerated application. One of them was a very excellent uh, field trial of the hepatitis B vaccine. 
that was done by Dr. Wolf Schmunis and his colleagues in uh, New York City. And uh, it, was, it was quite, a, it was a beautifully designed and executed study. He recruited uh, members of the male homosexual community in uh, New York City who had a very high risk of developing hepatitis B. Uh, a 20 to 30 percent annual uh, conversion risk. That's very high. That means a third of the people would develop hepatitis in a year. And um, they uh, agreed, uh, volunteered to take part in this program. A, um, he, some of them received the vaccine, others didn't. It was a coded study, so the investigators and the patients didn't, uh, or the individuals, uh, didn't know whether they were receiving uh, the vaccine or a placebo. And within a very short time, about a year, it was clear that the vaccine was highly protective. Uh, based on that first study, uh, Wolf uh, Schmunis estimated that it was protective in 90, more than 90 percent. In fact, 95, 97 percent or so. A highly protective vaccine, and there was no evidence of, of side effects in, in, in quite a carefully controlled study in that group. There were other field studies that were done, but I think it's fair to say that Wolf is, Wolf's uh, Schmunis's study uh, was uh, very convincing. And quite soon after that, the FDA uh, approved uh, the blood-derived vaccine. So that was a very important step forward. Then uh, several groups uh, decided to make a recombinant vaccine. Through genetic engineering methods. Right. And it was the first human vaccine made by the recombinant method. Ah, I didn't know that. As a matter of fact, it's the only vaccine made by the recombinant method now. And it's one of the major recombinant products. You know, it's the fourth or fifth or whatever most uh, important uh, recombinant uh, uh, pharmaceutical product. And uh, that, uh, that again, has, has been very successful. Its, uh, it, its effectiveness is about the same as the blood-derived vaccine. And it has a greater appeal to populations because it's not blood-derived. You know, people are kind of concerned about using blood-derived material. And that has now been produced in tens of millions of doses. The blood-derived vaccine is still used, actually, in uh, Asia in particular. And uh, the vaccine is now very widely used. Uh, now, you may recall when I came to India on that very interesting, exciting visit when I was in your laboratory in Bangalore, that uh, I had occasion to, to travel around India and uh, speak to people working in the hepatitis field and had an interview with uh, the then prime minister, who sadly was uh, assassinated shortly, a few a year or so afterwards. And, um, the, uh, and I understand that the vaccination program is now moving forward in, yes. in India. With great rapidity, yes. There, there are now... Uh, the latest figure I uh, gleaned from the WHO uh, webpage is there's, uh, there are about 100 countries that have national programs. Uh, they began first in East Asia because the problem was greatest in East Asia. Uh, in places like Taiwan, 15% of the population are carriers of the hepatitis B virus. Amazing. And the figures are quite similar. In, in uh, mainland China and, and Singapore and, uh, and um, Hong Kong and uh, Korea, where it's somewhat lo lower in Korea. In India, there's about, it's also somewhat lower, but still very large numbers. 
Uh, and in, in China, there are probably about 100 million carriers of hepatitis B virus. And worldwide, uh, the number is probably 350 million, maybe 400 million carriers, a very large number of people. Uh, now, the vaccine, of course, is not effective against the people who are already carriers. But it is effective in preventing people becoming infected and becoming carriers. And it's particularly effective when given to newborn children. In Asia, and also in Africa and elsewhere, the virus is very often transmitted from mothers to their children. Very kind of tragic and ironic uh, uh, situation where a mother actually transmits the virus to a child. It also may be transmitted by sibs or other family members. And if the child is, is, in, is infected at a very young age, very high probability of becoming a carrier. People are infected later in life, they can become carriers, but the probability is very much less. So a vaccination programs directed at newborn children were initiated in, in various East Asian countries in the 1980s, shortly after it was authorized for use. Well, the results of these studies are now in. And uh, the Taiwanese study has been particularly uh, well recorded. Uh, and the frequencies, the, uh, the uh, prevalence, rather, of, of hepatitis B carriers in the impacted group, that is, the group that received the vaccination, has dropped from 10 to 15 percent to 1 percent. And now that there's greater coverage, it probably will drop even lower. Mm -hmm. In Japan, where the, free, where the levels were about 3 or 4 percent, they've dropped down to 0 0.1, 0 0.2 percent. And there are similar results from other parts of the What's world. What's the situation in the U.S.? The U.S., uh, many jurisdictions, as, as you know, um, health matters are state-regulated here rather than by the national government, uh, the central government. And uh, quite a few jurisdictions require the use of the vaccine. Uh, the problem is less uh, is, is less intense here. You know, yes. there's, there's much less, but the cost-benefit analyses uh, indicate that uh, it's well worth doing uh, in in young children here. So many newborn children receive hepatitis. Uh, carriers of the hepatitis B virus uh, quite often develop liver cancer, and this has been a major. Uh, uh, development in our understanding of uh, liver cancer and this may be the uh, first or most important uh, uh, known virus causing a, a common uh, malignant uh, situation yes. malignant uh, cancer there there are other there are several uh, virus uh, cancer relations i think the hepatitis uh, cancer of the liver association was was uh, it's very well established and has been for quite a few years now. Uh, I spent a lot of time, uh, well, both working on that and quite a lot of time trying to get that concept across. I spent, a, I perhaps spent too much time, you know, talking about that. Maybe I should have done other things with the time, but I think in the long run it was effective, uh, particularly when I went to China in 1977. Um, I think, uh, and I told them about the work on hepatitis and about cancer of the liver. And I believe it had a big impact in China and, and helped move the whole program forward. Well, uh, the, there's a very uh, convincing body of data that uh, 
the hepatitis B uh, is a etiologic agent uh, for cancer, primary cancer of the liver. We now know that hepatitis C virus is also a major cause of primary cancer of the liver. It's estimated that hepatitis B causes about 85% of primary cancer of the liver, and hepatitis C causes a very large amount in places like Japan and the United States, but not in China. In China, it's mostly hepatitis B. Uh, and there's other evidence, for example, one of the... So that automatically opens up the possibility of preventing uh, yes. uh, liver cancer, at least bring it down, uh, the incidence. And, and... There's a, that's a very real uh, possibility, and that, model, that hypothesis has now been tested. Uh, as I said, the Taiwan study uh, vaccination program began more than 10 years ago. Uh, nearly 15 years ago, and they have now been able to look at the consequences of vaccination uh, in relation to the incidence of primary cancer of the liver. And the, they have shown that in the 10 years or so that uh, the vaccination program was in place, it was actually somewhat less than that, that the incidence of primary cancer of the liver in the vaccinated group has dropped by two-thirds. Remarkable. Now, if that's the case, that and if, it's, if this uh, finding is uh, uh, supported elsewhere, that means that one of the most common cancers of the in the world is now preventable. Um, primary cancer of the liver is the third most common cause of death from cancer in males, and the seventh most common cause of death from cancer in females worldwide. It's not so great in the United States, but, but in um, a good part of the world, it has that high ranking as a terrible killer. And the hope is that uh, this vaccination program will now cut that uh, out, not entirely, but it'll cut it back greatly. Now, uh, you have been uh, writing and talking about uh, pathogenesis and uh, the whole area of complexity of uh, biological yeah. problems. And uh, would you say something about uh, your current thinking on uh, complex biological uh, problems, uh, yeah. such as hepatitis itself, of yeah. course, uh, liver cancer and the uh, interrelationships yeah. and so on. These are all very complex problems with multiple agents being involved, genes, viruses, and uh, the environment and so on. Yeah. Would you speculate a bit on uh, these issues? Well, you know, in science, we learn that you go from the uh, from the specific to the general, and uh, you learn about details, and then from that you can make generalizations. Um, we've been very interested in the factors that lead, in addition to the infection with the hepatitis B virus, that might increase the probability of getting chronic liver disease or cancer. Because a lot of people, when they become carriers, uh, remain carriers and they don't get disease. But there's a about a 40% lifetime risk of getting cancer of the liver, at least in Taiwan, where this study was done. There's a very, if you're a carrier, at least in Taiwan, there's a very high risk of becoming, of getting cancer of the liver. Now, what are the factors that contribute? First of all, there are about five or six polymorphic loci now known that increase the probability, you know, one or more of the alleles of that locus, 
increase the probability of becoming a carrier of hepatitis B virus if, if you're infected. If you have alternate alleles, then you're more likely to develop antibody and have protection against further infection. Okay, now that's exactly the model that we started with. Yes, that long were, ago, yes. They were polymorphic variants, and we know several. There's a, uh, several alleles in the HLA system, uh, MHC class two alleles that have a potent effect. Uh, the uh, mannose binding protein allele, the uh, TNF tumor necrosis factor allele, uh, the vitamin D receptor allele, uh, all these are related to susceptibility to becoming a carrier. Therefore, the susceptibility of getting cancer of the liver. Okay, so there's an inherited susceptibility. But that only accounts for some of the probability. If people who are infected with hepatitis B virus ingest a lot of aflatoxin, their risk of getting cancer of the liver is greatly increased by 60-fold. Aflatoxin is a highly carcinogenic material that is uh, elaborated by uh, aspergillus, a fungus that very often infests uh, poorly stored grains, uh, peanuts and things. And if they're not uh, put in ventilated uh, and uh, dry uh, uh, storage areas, then they get infected with the, and that puts out this aflatoxin. And if people eat that stuff, in their foods, in their food, then that greatly increases the risk. Okay, so here we have an inherited, I mean, an, an environmental factor that interacts with the virus and with the genetic susceptibility to the virus. Now, there are also genes in the host that affect the metabolism of aflatoxin. I should say that this work that I'm about to describe is still in process, so the exact uh, validity of it isn't clear yet. But the indication are that there are at least two loci that control metabolic enzymes that either the product of one allele is a good metabolizer and the product of alternative alleles are poor metabolizers. And if people have inherited those susceptibility factors, in this case, susceptibility to getting rid of the toxic effects of the aflatoxin, that also interacts. Now, there's some indirect evidence that... Um, Arsenic may increase the probability. Uh, increased iron levels in the blood in the uh, in the blood st well storage iron also increases it. And there's a variety of other factors. Gender, for example, males are much more likely to be get cancer mm. of the liver. Uh, Barry, you have written uh, quite a bit about uh, science hypothesis, hypothesis building, and uh, creativity, and so on. And one of the things that I have uh, greatly admired in you is your courage in, uh, in building hypotheses and courage in rejecting them when you don't find them uh, borne out by, by the facts that you have been. And you have been doing this continuously. And, and that requires, uh, I think, uh, um, as I said, uh, a lot of courage. And most scientists, on the other hand, tend to be very cautious uh, in uh, both in building the hypothesis and they also tend to cling on to hypotheses that they find particularly attractive to them. Would you speculate a little bit on these matters? Well, thank you for uh, that comment. Uh, I, you know, I appreciate your uh, knowledge of these things and your uh, positive view on, on the process we've used. Um, I, I think I've, ever since I was in medical school, I've always had a, a very broad interest in, in a whole variety of topics. And 
I can recall being uh, criticized as a student because I couldn't kind of focus on exactly what it was we were supposed to be learning and always was bringing in rather extraneous material. Uh, now that was a, can be a kind of a weakness, but it's, uh, it's also a strength in that if you look at enough things, you begin to see connections. I mean, if you don't look widely, you don't know they exist. And if you do know they exist, then the possibility of showing connections uh, appears. I guess also I was very influenced by, by, uh, by, by Karl Popper. Now, when I read about Popper, uh, I, I, I had this feeling that uh, that's what I've been doing, you know, before I read about him. And, uh, and Popper, you know, has this uh, notion, which is, you know, hotly, you know, there's a great deal of debate about his uh, approach to the scientific process. Uh, that um, uh, that one should uh, try to state a hypothesis in such a form that you're kind of equally happy to support it or reject it. If if you support it, fine. If you reject it, that's also fine, because that means you have to come up with a new idea. If you support a hypothesis, you still have the same idea. If you reject it, you have to have a new one. So there's actually a kind of an attraction uh, to, you might even say the best hypotheses are the ones that you reject. Now, having said, uh, you know, the Popperian method says you can never really prove anything. Uh, you can only reject it. Well, that's a bit of a hyperbole to my mind, and I'm not sure he actually meant that. Very often, uh, although you can't absolutely say that uh, you've totally proven a hypothesis, if you test it rigorously multiple times and, and, you, and you don't reject it, you can act as if you support it. So it doesn't deal with the question of whether it's true or not. I don't think science actually deals with the question of truth. What it deals with is what do you do next? And if you, and if you continue this testing, you don't, and you really try hard to reject it, and you don't do so, you say, well, may or may not be true, but I'm going to go ahead as if it were. Now, this notion that you don't have to cling to a hypothesis as if it's part of your ego, that the ability to uh, to do that, I think, uh, you know, can lead to uh, the possibility of many hypotheses. And the uh, now I have to say that that's all true. But after you're into a hypothesis for a long time, for example, we would have been very hard for us to reject the idea that the hepatitis virus was the hepatitis virus after we'd invested so much time and effort into it. But even then, I can say if it turns out it wasn't the hepatitis virus, it would have to have been something very interesting <laughs> if, that, if that had uh, been rejected. Well, Barry, it's been great uh, talking to you, and uh, thanks for uh, <laughs> Thank you, Lecturer. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.